This podcast was recorded on July 1st, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Greetings and welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest with us. Well, maybe not so special returning guest, Jeff Mayberry, Portfolio Manager here at DoubleLine. Hey, guys. And uh, today, as we'd like to do, today is the first business day of the second half of the year. So we want to kick off a review of where the market started off the year, where we've been, and uh, hopefully uh, provide some insight of where we're thinking about things and seeing things for the second half of the year. So we obviously won't discuss any funds here for regulatory purposes. We're going to keep this about indices, markets, and keep it hopefully a fluid and lively discussion. So hopefully you enjoy this today. So let's start it off. Sam, what happened this year? Yeah, it's hard to believe that we're at the second half of the year already, but it seems like the first half of 2019 has turned out to be the other way around, bro, as we like to call it here, versus 2018, which was a year in which seemingly it was impossible to make money in any asset class. You fast forward to 2019, six months through, and we're seeing the exact opposite, where pretty much everything, if you look across the board, is showing some type of positive return. So looking at uh, the bond index, the U.S. Barclays Ag, it's up about 6%. Within there, you've got every constituent in there It seems like a lot of it's driven by investment-grade corporate credit here in the U.S., up almost 10%, which almost equates to the U.S. high yield index as well up there. uh, You you said every constituent. You probably mean every sector of the market. I'm sure there's a couple of bonds that are actually down in this up market. I might might miss a couple of those bonds too as well, right? But yeah, so you've got the IG, you know, the the AG is largely comprised of government, uh, U.S. Treasury, as well as uh, IG corporate credit. And both sides of that equation are up, being led largely by IG corporate credit, again, up about 10%. Uh, you scan across you know, to non-U.S. areas, even international sovereign debt. We can talk about negative yields huh, and perhaps look and talk about how they would think you'd be guaranteed to lose money, but they look like they're up right around uh, 9% on the index overall. Year to date, you've got emerging markets up around 9 to 10%. You scan over to equities. Large cap equities, as measured by the SPX, is just reached a, uh, an all-time high. This is July 1st uh, that we're talking about. It, it was short-lived as of this point, but it's touching there again. So right now we're looking at just around a 20% return. Small cap up dub, double digits uh, as well. You've got international equities up, emerging market equities up, you name it. You look over even to the commodities market, and guess what? Broad basket of commodities is even up year-to-date on a positive basis, largely driven by energy, which uh, I think if you look at the the TI right now, WTI crude oil futures, it's up about 30% on the year. So things are looking pretty good, I'd have to say, uh, six months in the year. So right. where so do we go? Let's talk about the sentiment, though. So the sentiment coming in, running off the fourth quarter, we had a huge change in sentiment. It started with Essentially, I, I blame the Fed for the first part. You're looking at me kind of suspiciously there, Jeff. No, but, I, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, the Fed started it with their essentially ignoring the balance sheet runoff, right? They continued to ignore the markets with the infamous autopilot quote in the middle of uh, December at the Fed meeting there. And sentiment was extremely negative everywhere. And then all of a sudden, it was Jerome Powell to the rescue, it felt like. 
He had his little, what we call the kumbaya moment with former heads of the Fed, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen. And all of a sudden, he seemed to get indoctrinated into that old dovish speak. I say old dovish speak because that's what we're used to from most, both Bernanke and Yellen. And so that sentiment shift led to this risk on rally. But what's changed in the marketplace over this time time period? We're talking about these strong reversals in, in markets. We're talking about strong positive rates of return. But the macroeconomic data set has weakened somewhat. And I think what I find the most curious about all that is it's a sentiment game is that I think the bankers are back in control again, the central bankers, right? The dovish sentiment that the bankers will ha- be there to have your back, that what's referred to colloquially as the central bank put, right? You have it both here in the U.S. perhaps with Mr. Powell, and we'll talk about the projected rate cuts later on. But also Draghi's now talking about perhaps doing QE again, maybe doing you know a, even further interest rate reductions. And as you'd mentioned, Sam, coming in the year, this negative yielding debt, when we turn the calendar, there was roughly, if you take like just the constituents of the Barclays Global Ag and calculate how much market value of negative debt, there was $8.3 trillion in negative yielding debt, which sounds like a lot, which it is a lot. But today, that number is over $13 trillion. So as you mentioned, negative yielding security sounds like a losing proposition, and they likely are if you hold to maturity. But in the interim, uh, they've kind of made fools of a lot of people, or they've made people who have been buying these securities generate positive rates of return. So question becomes here, what's an investor to do when seeing the sentiment out there? How, how does the macro landscape look to you, Jeff? Yeah, I think it's very. It's a very interesting time where you have – Uh, the old bad news is good news type idea where if things are bad that the Fed's going to cut rates, but you don't want them too bad, obviously, that that affects your fundamental side of things. So you kind of want this easy middle, which is where we've seemed to have fallen over the past six months where things are bad, they're not terrible. So the Fed's going to cut. That's why stocks are up. I kind of in my mind, though, you have 10 year at 2%. It's almost pricing in a recession. Or, you know, recession around the corner, whereas stocks are, at, as as Lau said, at all-time highs. There's a disconnect there somewhere. Yeah. I think I see it. I agree with you there. I see it a little bit more nuanced in the sense that, you know, people are throwing around the term Goldilocks now, where it's not even just bad news is good news. It's to the point where they want everything to perfection because – I mean, if you look at the data, the GDP you know, numbers on both nominal and real still seem okay, you know, stable. It's nothing really new. And if anything, if you're looking at real GDP, it looks like it's been accelerating you know, to the upside uh, over the past few quarters. If you look at some of the sentiment indicators, the trend is working against us now on, let's say, PMI from a manufacturing PMI standpoint. Industrial production numbers are, are starting to tilt down. Um, not only here, but they're but down, in the US. but they're, they're positive. They're still in the positive, US, right? correct. Yeah, but, correct. They're, but they're decelerating, right? Yeah, and that's the trend is not, not necessarily favorable, but everything is still in the expa- signaling expansion from that that standpoint. It, it kind of feels like we're being driven by the global forces today and that we sit here in the U.S., we look at the U.S. economic data, and as you mentioned, the numbers are still pretty positive. Our screens in general and our recession indicators, there's a couple of them yellow. There's a couple that are red that say recession, but all the ones that are red are actually yield curve related, which can be fixed by the Fed. Perhaps that's what some of the markets are thinking. Fixed. Fixed, right? <laughs> it's fixed because it's an inversion of the curve. And so you, you can cut those, those numbers. That's usually not a good thing. But, but 
when you look at it, it seems to be that's the the global sentiment that shift. This has been a global rally in bond yields, and we're talking about things that were negative. I mean, Germany hit a all time negative rate on their ten year boon, right? We got to, I think the the record was like negative thirty three. Do we hit a thirty four handle? I think we're at thirty six now. Oh, thirty six. Yeah, today. Okay, so we're having an all time record today, and what you see is that the U.S. data is still okay. But now we have all these pundits calling for rate cuts that the U.S. is going to fall off a cliff if we don't get these magical rate cuts. So let's go back to your comment on the 10-year in the U.S. being 2%. I would argue that the first couple months of the year, the rally in the 10-year was really that repricing of the growth story, which hasn't really changed significantly in the U.S., right? I mean, yeah, we're, we're talking about a softer rate. We're probably back to trend line growth and maybe even a little bit above average there. But what's really changed in the last three and a half months, and I'll say that from kind of earmarking that data point as being the FOMC meeting in March, right? That's where people really started to focus on inflation data. And the inflation data has been relatively stable on an ex post basis, so looking backward. But the difference is expectations have changed drastically. So whether this is break-even spreads, um, as they use in like the Eurozone and here in the U.S., the five-year, five-year forward, we hear about, Bern- uh, I'm going to call him a Bernanke now. Uh, we hear from Powell talking about the inflation survey, which is that Michigan five-year kind of forward-looking estimate of inflation from survey data. So the question becomes is that are we are we in the self-prophecy of a disinflationary spiral where even though the data seems to be printing at this one and a half to, if you take headline number, it's close to two today in CPI. But are we in the self-fulfilling idea that people just think prices are not going to be accelerating to the upside? I mean, I think that the data bears that out, right? It's it's it has not accelerated. It, it's kind of flat. There's no, uh, you know, you had the huge QE that we had over the past few years up until last year. It didn't give you any inflation. So it seems like the inflation's in check, even though even though you had those those forces of QE that it. I don't see how they can really get. It doesn't seem like inflation is a worry because if it wasn't, if it didn't, we didn't get it a few years ago with all this QE. Why would we get it now when there's balance sheet is unwinding or or slowing down the unwind anyway? Yeah, unwinding yeah. the unwind. Yeah. But also to that point, you talk about it. You talk about expectations, right? But now this year there was this really increased rhetoric of modern monetary theory, right? That's something that we heard about, and in the face of people discussing that. You know, the deficit being at a record as a percent of GDP in non-recessionary times. What you find here is that all, all these ideas don't seem to rattle the bond market. Well, why do you think that is, Sam? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's you're coming back to the point where inflation may or may not, for many people's minds, be dead. I mean, we're walking around with these beanies that, you know, our buddy, you know, Zervos gave us that says, you know, rest in peace, Phillips curve. And you have this MMT which you know, people are talking about, especially we're probably going to be hearing a little bit more of going into the 2020 elections as a way to fund all the, the free stuff that one of the platforms seems to be running on. And on the one hand, you can kind of point back and look and see what we've been doing since 2009. I mean, haven't through quantitative easing, like you said, haven't we been doing some type of MMT you know, during this entire period of time? So I think at the end of the day, it's like you look at the U.S., where we are with with regards to where our yields are. We're talking about 2% 10-year, but we're still positive, number one, on that backdrop of $13 trillion, uh, in negative debt. We're still uh, relative to, let's just say, the boon. I know there's hedging costs and everything around that, but the fact that you're going from – yeah, let's go zero down to a negative thirty six over the course of you know a few months versus the U.S., which started the year at two seventy. You know, now we're out on that two. It's 
I think it's just a different backdrop and we're not operating in this vacuum. Yeah. So you mentioned that. And so a lot of people have said that's part of the rally you've seen in high yield bonds and corporate bonds this year in the US is that it has been these foreign buyers stepping in. Um, because again, with hedging costs being expensive, instead of having a zero yield on a hedge basis or slightly negative yield, you actually get some spread pickup here. So it is interesting to me that what we see here is we have a credit rally, you have an equity rally, you have somewhat of a commodity rally, not really in the metals, but more led by the energy sector, and you have a rates rally. What gives here? I mean, wh- what do you make of this right now, Jeff? I mean, I think when I when I went back and looked at it kind of month to month this year, everything was kind of flat for the first you know three, four months of the year. It was really in May you had the you know, stocks, you know, the sentiment shifted again in, in May. And what uh, drove that sentiment shift? You had the trade war pick up again, and you saw that you know the stock, large cap stocks went down, and you had the the ten year actually reacted like it quote unquote should, and it went down. And in June, you had the rebound back in stocks, and the ten year was like, no, we're not going to we're not going to go back up. Yields aren't going to go back up. We're going to go down, you know, from two thirteen to two. Right. And so that seemed that disconnect in June was really Fed driven, and it was really the market going, you know, from Okay, we're going to maybe get a cut or two this year. To now, there's now the market's pricing in four cuts, and there's talks of whether it's a fifty basis point cut here in the end of July. Right. So I think that's a good point. Let, let's segue to the Fed. But I, I do find it interesting that we supposedly get. It's not called trade peace. As, <laughs> uh, that's what uh, Sam's been trying to drive. Yeah, that's what we were talking about goal. in the Jul- January the goal. one. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple steps. Right, but but Sam wants to call it trade peace. I've seen now it's alliterative. Now it's called trade truce. So it's not peace. It's just that we're not going to implement anymore. And there's some concessions with Huawei and uh, taking them a little bit off the ban list at this point. But it's funny, too. You get the risk rally, spreads tighten, rates don't really move again. I mean, we're off like a basis point or two. And so is the bond market, uh, let's, let's not say the whole bond market, but is the U.S. rates market too bearish at this point? Or is it warranted that the market needs the cut, the rest of the markets are pricing in, and it's just the Treasury market or the Fed being far behind. What do you say, Sam? I mean, you look at what the uh, the rates market is really telling you from, let's just say, the longer part of the curve from 10 years out. And it's somewhat in agreement with what we're seeing in commodities. I mean, outside of the energy market, you know, commodities as a barometer for global economic strength or weakness, if you take a look at the industrial metals, especially if you take a look at Dr. Copper, you know, right now, I think it's pretty much flat for the most part on the year. It had been in the downtrend. It seems to be corroborating what the the rates market is saying on that long end. Really, what's kept up commodities uh, from from that standpoint, as also an indicator of global growth, has been the energy market, as we talked about before. And I think a lot of that has to do with the uncertainty around news around OPEC, around geopolitical risks, you know, that seem to be resurging again in the Middle East, specifically around around Iran. Yeah. Well, you bring up the commodity complex. I think it's interesting after the trade truce today. Right, we have the weekend to digest all that, and we come in. Industrial metals are just getting smoked. Right, they're down a couple percent. Depends on which one you look at. But Doctor Copper, um, I don't know what you call nickel. nickel. There's a fancy, fancy name for nickel. Five cents. Uh, yeah, um, but nickel, zinc. I mean, they're getting really hit hard today, and so there is a disconnect in certain parts of the market. I mean, that's what we've been saying. If there is any market that's not pricing in the trade piece or the truce, it's definitely the commodity complex outside of the energy. It's going back to what Mayberry said too, and what you said before with the Powell put and then, you know, bad news is good news. And I think some of the the risk markets as measured through US equities and let's just even say high yield, throw that in there, you know, seem to be pricing in the optimism of 
trade peace, you know, take it beyond trade truce and go to trade peace. They're pricing the optimistic scenario that there may be three cuts, you know, uh, through 2019. Yeah, I did see today that um, the repricing of the Fed futures curves, this little wonky looking at, you know, forward LIBOR rates and the like, but essentially one year out, we went from having four cuts to only about three and a half today. So that stuff can move very quickly and you, and you saw that reversal. But I think that bringing up the Fed is very important is that are we just addicted to having the central banks to have our back? And if that's the case, then essentially, you know, are we looking at, you know, a world of modern monetary theory, right? It's just fiscally stimulate as much as we can and let the central banks deal with it. I think short answer, yes. And, you know, I think that it's something that, you know, MMT is one of those that'll work until it doesn't type ideas. And, you know, that, that whole fiscal stimulus, the whole, you know, monetary side, you know, whether we end up, you know, kind of pegging a, uh, a 10-year rate if the Fed says, you know, does the Bank of Japan and says we're going to buy any 10-year, anything above 2% yield, then, you know, th- that that's certainly a possible outcome. Right. So it seems like the supply side folks, I think that's what we talk about when we talk about fiscal stimulus is su- supply side economics. They're, they're saying that, well, we need the Fed to assist on the monetary side to cut rates because that's the only thing that'll get us back to higher levels of inflation. What do you think and, of that, Sam? I mean, do you think the Fed cutting 25 or 50 is going to really stimulate it? I mean, yes, effectively, it could have some impact on you know the weighted average cost of capital for corporate America. But essentially, the bond market's already priced in cheaper cost of financing for corporate America through spread tightening as well as rates. Yeah. And you know, when you're talking about monetary policy and the, you know, perhaps the market's getting a little bit too addicted to it, let's not forget that there's a new shiny tool in there that's now perhaps a permanent place in there, and that's quantitative easing outside of just monetary policy, right? So it goes in hand with the MMT that we're talking about. But you got to think that if we're at this part of the economy where we've been talking about, you know, in the U.S. at least, GDP seems okay. PMI, uh, other sentiment indicators are trending down, but still positive. If we're already considering doing rate cuts at this point when the economy is okay, you know, not even in the recessionary uh, uh, framework right now, then, you know, what's going to happen when we start to see those recessionary indicators? And then you got to go from having that, you know, that that past lower bound that we used to have of zero interest rate policy or ZERP right. to start thinking about a NERP type world with negative interest rate policy for the U.S. I don't think that's too far out of the question well, if we're already down this a, path. A lot of people who study Fed verbiage and just get into exactly the, the details did notice that, uh, Mr. Powell stopped talking, referring to it as the zero lower bound and started calling it the effective lower bound. And that just connotes the idea that they may be open to negative interest rate policy. But it, it is strange that all of a sudden now, you mentioned that the data is okay. We can probably wait a little bit to make a move. But all the stra- a lot of strategists, a lot of economists are saying, you know, essentially the Fed needs to provide an insurance cut to the market. Is the market that fragile that we need insurance out there? Or is that just trying to continue to root for these risk-on rallies until we really have things that trade at astronomical valuation levels? Well, I think that you also have, if the market's pricing in 100% chance of a Fed 25 basis point cut, what happens to the market if the Fed doesn't cut? It's not really a, do do, do they need it? It's the market saying you need to cut. And so the Fed kind of ha- is beholden to the market at this point. Right. I think the saying is that the market tells the Fed when to cut. The Fed tells the market when they're raising, hiking. Right. And so you know we're certainly not in the hiking cycle anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that the market is telling the Fed you have to cut in January. The policy is too tight. July. Right? But yeah. what happens yes. to the market? So 
I think the Fed means July 31st, so I'll put you on the spot. What happens here if, if the Fed doesn't cut and says things that we're still monitoring, there's asymmetric risk, perhaps they're to the downside. They don't even talk about the symmetry of risk anymore. Uh, the whole point on the last one was just to guide to say, okay, we're not hiking again, at least for the foreseeable future. But what happens to markets if indeed they don't get this cut? I mean, I think you have stocks down, you know, 10%. You know, and does that maybe make not, them maybe come not back? that exact that day, right. but you know, yeah. sometime you know but, that week, right? So that's that's a big move in a week. It's stocks; they're volatile. Oh, okay, uh, but the the idea here, I, I would say too, is is the market that dependent on the Fed? I mean, yes, the, the inversion of the curve, especially from the front end, says that policy is too tight. But at some point, what happens to the bond market in that case? I mean, I think then the the bond market prices in. Okay, the Fed's not cut. The Fed is not going to cut as quickly as obviously obviously they're not going to cut as quickly as the market wants but they're going to be much more worried about the longer term effects of cutting rates too much now and then being in a position where if we do get a recession because as as Lau said we're not in a recession we do start to get a recession if the if the fed has already used up all of its ammunition cutting then they have to go into negative rates I mean, it seems like the equity market I would agree they're going to throw a little bit of a tantrum if they don't get the cut they want in July the direction, at least, I, I would agree with their magnitude. We'll see. Um, it could, I could agree with them. It could easily go there. I think for the bond market, though, I mean, it's going to depend a lot more on the forward-looking guidance. I mean, right now, it looks like the bills through maybe, let's say, the, the two-year note are all pricing in at least one or two cuts even at, at this point. But, you know, depending on the forward-looking guidance, I think you could see bonds kind of hold in where, they at, where they're at. If let's say the data comes in, because don't forget we're getting that GDP uh, revision, or is it, yeah, for, first, for, first look, yeah, the I've first pointed, look. I've been pointing that out that that's the optionality with the Fed is that the day of the, the the day of the Fed decision, they that morning they actually get the first advanced print of second quarter GDP. So I think that's the big wild card. I think that anything with a one handle or lower, <laughs> you get a cut. And I'd say a one handle, you get your twenty five basis point cut. I'd say. A zero, it leads with a zero and it has a decimal in it, it's 50. So that's right. pretty much when, when Powell said in the June meeting, we need more data. Right. He's just waiting for that one number. That one number because that because then you can start to average that with the first quarter, which has been finalized back at 3-1, right? And so I, I would still argue that, you know, you did one and a half or so, it still gets you to a two and a quarter annualized rate um, if you take the first half of the year. But the problem is, is that the market wants the three. You know, people, you know, you hear a lot of punditry talk about the three, but I would argue that if the Fed sees a two handle, it says 2.0 or greater on that first advanced look of second quarter GDP, uh, I think they're pausing. I think they want to pause because they don't want to seem like they're at the mercy of everything in the market. And again, maybe that can help, you know, maybe stocks aren't down 10%, you know, maybe they're only down a few and we're going to look through the data set. So uh, don't forget, you get a jobs number between now and then. Yeah. Right, you get that um, at the end of. The, I don't think it's this week because the holiday. I think it's next week, uh, but you also get a whole month of economic data. So there's a there's a flurry of data that comes out in the next two weeks. So I think that's really the tell that we'll kind of know that with the wild card being the GDP print. I think the economic data it's going to tell in the next week or so. So what you're really saying is that the. Powell and the Fed are going to be more data dependent than market dependent in this case, right? So well, that's what, been that's what you'd us. hope, hope right. for at least, right? But uh, so if you're talking about, you know, perhaps a cut with a one handle GDP now, I mean, it's not always been accurate. In fact, it's it's volatile. It's volatile. Uh, it's printing right now at about a one five for, for the early look. 
sounds like you're thinking uh, insurance cuts are kind of there because one five is still. I still think it's good. I mean, look, may, call call me crazy, but three one plus one five equals four six. You divide by two. I'm not good at math, but it's about a two point <laughs> three, three. Yeah, which Pretty I call solid. as trend line growth since the recession. And I know I was castigated for saying that to someone on TV on the last Fed day. Uh, but effectively, that is our trend line growth. And to expect a three-handle in perpetuity is crazy, especially with uncertainty, right? With the trade truce, which can turn into trade war again. Uh, the fact that, you know, last month, uh, the president lashed out, or two months ago, lashed out at uh, Mexico, right? That isn't going to get resolved. I mean, there's no way the Mexican government can win here. They can't deliver on the promise. Um, because it's just impossible, right? And so uh, when you look at that, the wild cards, I think the economy for the the uncertainty we have is doing a pretty dang good job right now. I would agree with that. And then one area of the market that I am kind of keeping an eye on is uh, U.S. equities because it just seems like if you have a market that's constantly or has been reaching all-time highs yet can be undone with just one tweet that comes out you know, over the weekend, yeah, there seems to be some type of fragility over there. I mean, but, but wouldn't you argue that the markets become less or are more immune to the tweets? Uh, when the president first got elected, I mean, you could drive a stock down five, seven, ten percent on one tweet. Yeah. Now there's, you know, it's it's kind of all over the board, and I think there's less reaction. I mean, I know what you're you're referring to here, the, you know, great trade deal that was negotiated, the hugs, the kisses, and everything that <laughs> that we saw photos. It was of. it May fifth or May sixth? And then, uh, well, the market sold off, and then the hugs and kisses came uh, the this this, this past, past weekend. Week. Yeah, May sixth was the day because it's after Cinco de Mayo, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it was after China, not Mexico on Cinco de Mayo. He waited a few few more weeks. So, all right. So uh, that's what's happened. No one really cares. That's some of our views. But well, okay. So what what do we think about positioning wise? Now we're sitting here in the middle of the year. We've made money and things, right? Uh, what does an asset allocator do today? And think about where are some opportunities, where are some pitfalls. What are things you're thinking about? And uh, we'll start with you, Jeff. What are you thinking about here? Well, what makes sense for investors? You know, stocks up, you know, roughly twenty percent or so. Um, you know, uh, we talked about credit products, investment grade, high yield up double digits or roughly there, high nines to low tens. Um, emerging market indices up, you know, double digits as well. Um, I don't know if the equities are still holding in there, the double digits, but definitely on the on the bond side. So, what's an allocator to do? Just be happy. Is it time to rethink and re-sculpt? Is it time to be worried about the recession data or the data set weakening further? How do you talk to clients about it, Jeff? Well, I think that if you are, are looking at things from, from this perspective, you're saying, I'm up 20% on my equities. Maybe if you're not going to take pare down your risk at when they're at all-time highs, when are you ever going to pare down your, your risk? <laughs> so, may, so maybe pare, start paring it down. You don't need to go you know, cut, cut your allocation by you know 10% today or something. But what do they start- go into? So let's say that someone is worried about that and says, well, what do I want to do? Well, I want to buy the Barclays Ag up a six handle in six months. So I guess when you take a look at that, you know, buy – you know, buy low, sell high you kind of situation, yeah, right? Wait, wait you know, jump in. I was, about, I was about to say, you know, all right, go back, say, go back. Say, the same thing we we said in, in January: buy tri- buy two year treasuries, buy or I think I re- I reviewed the transcript this morning. We said buy two year treasuries, then we got talked into buying the the twelve month T bill because it yielded more. Right. Just just take some chips off the table, buy something that you know the the buy something that gives you a little bit of yield that you're will be happy with over that time period, and then. You know, if we do get a recession, you can de- redeploy those chips at lower levels. Right. So when you talk about redeploying or taking some off, 
Are you talking about 80% of your portfolio? Are you talking about 5%? Of, what, what are you thinking about at these levels? I would think right now you start taking, taking off, you know, maybe one or 2% positions at a time. You don't need to do it all at once, you know, to kind of try to ride. If it's still going up, you don't want to be, have that timing wrong. But if you take off a couple percentage points here or there, you know, maybe next month, if, if this continues, take off another couple percentage points, just do it gradually. What I like to tell people, if you didn't like the fourth quarter, if you didn't like the way it felt and the drawdown you had, you got a whole new chance to, to, to <laughs> yeah. re-sculpt, right? And so that, that's the whole point in, in good risk management is to think about, you know, what is the right point? Because we know that these things don't really extrapolate very well. Um, you know, look, I'll be happy to sit here in six months' time and say, look, stock's up 40, high yield bonds up 20, 26 trillion in negative yielding bonds right. if we're going to extrapolate the trends. I guess it would be more like 18 or 19. But the point being is what do you do or how are you thinking about it? I continue to say one of the uh, under-owned areas of most people's allocations is to a basket of commodities. And if you take a look at commodities as a way – and I know we've been dinging on inflation, talking about Phillips curve is dead. But you know, it's not a 0% probability that you know, you're not going to get inflation again. So you know, if you have the diversification, if you have a hedge that actually can pay you, you know, over time, you know, commodities – as a broad basket investment into a diversified portfolio can serve that purpose. And I think most people in their portfolios today have no inflation protection within there just because you know, it, it might cost them otherwise, depending on how they're implementing it. But with commodities from a total return perspective, and hey, you, know, you can collateralize with cash today. You know, cash is something that we like. You know, so if you're looking at a portfolio that has T-bills with it behind it, you're getting about a 2%. Yield yeah. on that. So it's cash with optionality, but the optionality cuts both directions, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think another thing too that, that merits interest too and, and something we've been following is gold too, right? And so there's something about gold uh, from a technical perspective broke out, you know, two weeks ago, um, set, broke through that critical 1400 back below it too. We'll have to see if we get confirmation on that. Uh, but that's something I think is under-owned. And, you know, as you think about 14 or 13 trillion, probably will be 14 next time we talk, dollars worth of negative yielding bonds out there in market value, it's no wonder people like that zero yielding gold once again. It has some optionality. And so again, um, I think in the next crisis, gold will be a good performer. Who knows what the right entry point is too, but it's definitely something that's uh, on my screen today as well. And that, you know, alongside that, it's you know, around the same time that gold got its little pop there, Bitcoin also did, did the same thing. You saw that thing jump. And I'm not, you know, it, it, okay. Anyway, it went from 4,000 to, again, where it's back got, up to like a 12,000. Yeah. Or it got to the high 12,000s and kind of reversed its crater in the last day or two. Been highly correlated. It's been like gold with like a 5 to 7x leverage on it. Yeah. I guess. Uh, as of late, but that big move, I mean, it was parabolic for a few days. Um, so, Jeff, is there anything in the uh, bond market you see as being a pitfall that people aren't aware of some of the risk out there um, where people have been you know, skating dangerously or something that you see out there today that you'd like to advise folks on? I mean, I think it's it, maybe it's not something people are not aware of because we've been harping on it for years now, it seems like. Well, probably it's been years. So we're the broken uh, in, clock? <laughs> yeah, inve- the uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, just, just their long duration. At a 2% 10-year, do you want to own something with a duration of over seven years? Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you want that as your as your hedge to your to your you know theoretically your air equity portfolio. But we think that you know you can get better characteristics if you buy a ten year treasury. Give, maybe give you a little bit more duration, but you know that that gives you that more better flight to quality uh, type trade. So yeah, it's hard to see. I, I think it's really hard at this point with a two percent ten year. 
Um, it's really hard to see how investor-grade corporates win if we continue to have another rate rally from here. And I used the word Goldilocks earlier, uh, Sam. I mean, it's been Goldilocks for IG corporates, right? We had pretty, we had a lot of spread widening last year while rates went up. You've had the tailwind of, of spread compression coupled with this big rate rally. I mean, it's it's very rare to see IG and high yield have very similar returns and very strong in a six month window. Both have an almost ten percent type of return. Um, there's something disconnected there. So the good credit with more yield is giving the same return as the. I'm sorry, the the lower credit with good yield is giving the same return as the higher quality credit. Um, but it's really just been a duration trade, the bulk of it, right? And you're and you're pretty much hovering just above your your one year lows and spread for IG, and not to mention just a little bit more above your uh, your twenty year low in spreads as well. So from a valuation perspective, it doesn't look that attractive from that standpoint. All right. So what do you see as pitfalls too? We're hearing a lot of negative sentiment about the housing market. Any comments there? Yeah, um, but before we get into that, I'll answer that. But uh, another area too is just you know yeah. uh, bank loans is another area. If we're talking about U.S. corporate credit, I mean bank loans. You know, from a fundamentals perspective, you've seen weakening in covenants, but you know you had the argument for a potential rising rate environment, especially at the short end of the curve. That was a tailwind uh, going into 2019, and now here we are. You know, in, in six months out, seven into the seventh month of the uh, year, and we're talking about potentially three to four rate cuts in, in the next 12 months. So, from that standpoint, you know, bank loans have def- definitely lost a little bit of their luster. You know, relative to and remember, those are areas. lower quality type of securities too. Um, and I would think that there would try to be some prevalence from the um, issuing community if if they do believe that rates are going lower from the LIBOR side. It probably makes more sense to try to issue there. So you may see some supply putting pressure on spreads too. Now back to housing though. I'm not going to let you dodge the yeah. second question I threw in there. Yeah. I mean, let's just look at it from an affordability standpoint. I mean, you kind of have two opposing forces right there with housing prices still you know, relatively elevated. But on the other hand, you have rates coming down, which is always uh, a positive in terms of affordable from that part of the affordability standpoint. So I think it's a toss-up with the housing market in terms of where we are. I think you know people who may have been waiting, you know, for a better entry point might start looking. That coupled with the fact that we're heading into the summer months, you've got low rates. I think I saw a headline here that we're at the lowest rates since 2016 for your average home buyer that requires a mortgage. So I mean, you could see a little pop-up based on that going into into the the third quarter. Yeah, this is also the seasonal part of buying too, right? Seasonal part of the year. It's funny you mentioned 2016, the low in rates. It sure feels to me like all of a sudden that the bond market feels like July or late June of 2016, right? Going into Brexit, where the Treasury kind of bottomed. Granted, our yields are higher. I think we hit, what, 132 on the 10-year back then. We're sitting, day. At, at, sitting at, a, at a two today. But you have Germany at new lows. Um, you have France uh, plumbing the lows as well. So, uh, again, that's highly correlated. But uh, you look at the Japanese JGBs, they're, they're always in the same area. It sure feels like the, the world has, has that negative sentiment again. And so w- what changed at that point? W- what was the reversal there? And w- why are you laughing? I'm just laughing because uh, I was going to say all we need is another election and get a little bump out of the uh, the results again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, but rates went up a little bit before that, right? They did. So they started it was some, It was in some – but this is where inflation expectations got down so low. So – uh, I think it's just something to monitor. Remember, the sentiment shifted. The sentiment out there went positive this year, except in bonds, it really went pretty negative to to get the rallies we've seen. 
And so it's something that you got to be careful of the reversal out there. So, um, you know, I think you still got to be a little cautious on the duration side, although there are no signs of incipient inflation or something coming out of the woodworks. Um, it's still something to continue to monitor. And let's keep in mind, too, I mean, even though we've been talking about the U.S. economy being okay, it's the trend. Some of the trends that we're seeing are negative. They are deteriorating. So we'll keep watching and, you know, seeing if it's going to cross that line into a contraction type of indicator. But right. It'll be interesting to see whether the kind of non-U.S. global you know, economies can drag the U.S. economy down. Right. The whole the old story is it's the U.S. that tends to um, lead the glo- the world into a recession. We've never seen the rest of the world. Europe doesn't lead the world into a recession. It's usually the U.S. Right. And um, I, I would say that the sentiment in Europe is pretty pretty negative as it has been for many years now. And uh, may- maybe there the revival there is um, you just need a new person in charge of the ECB. Although I, I'm pretty sure status quo is is probably what most people are are extrapolating from the current situation. One thing, actually, I, I just thought about that you brought up earlier is the um, on the topic of monetary policy, how you mentioned that Draghi seems to be indicating a, another whatever it takes part de you know, coming through. And then even the, <laughs> you like that. Yeah. I was in France it's earlier this year. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And the uh, the Japanese as well saying that they're you know perhaps indicating uh, what tools do they have to take it further? I mean how I mean if you take a negative forty basis point overnight rate, bring it to negative seventy five, does that do that much? It's going to generate one? massive inflation, so they'll hit their goals. I mean that's what I, I'd make the same argument here in the U.S. It's like if the Fed cuts, how, how does that all of a sudden stoke some level of inflation? Like oh this twenty five basis point reduction in my credit card rate is going to really make me want to go out and spend all kinds of money. I just, I don't see it, you know, at this point in the cycle. But again, um, at this stage, I think, you know, it's prudent to own some credit. It's prudent to own equities. I think there, there's nothing wrong with that. But at this stage, I wouldn't want to be adding to either of those sides of the equation. And that's kind of what we've been doing around here is just peeling a little bit of that risk off. Again, in baby steps, as Jeff said here. And, you know, it's not that attractive to buy a bunch of treasuries, but you know what you own, right? And they ha- offer real yields. Um, because inflation is is relatively somewhat lower. And so at this stage, it doesn't seem like a bad idea to just be a little cautious and, and understand uh, you don't make money every single month in these markets, and there may be a better buying opportunity along there. So with that, is there any more parting shots before we bring in our other colleague? That's Hearing, uh, hearing none. Yeah, Je- Jeff always is, is trying to get out of here as quick as possible. So with that, uh, maybe Sam can introduce the rules of Sherman Says and we will have Eric Dahl come in as a, a nonpartisan participant here has not shown us any of the words. And the rules of the game for Sherman Says is actually today, Mr. Dahl will be providing a term, a cue for Sherman, Mayberry, and myself to respond to. And we will provide top-of-mind responses in alternating order. In one word, as Sam does not want to do. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. So do we know what the order is of people? Eric is going to announce the order, and he's going to play the game according to his rules. I've got to say, this is probably the happiest I ever see Dahl, too, is when he gets to come in and and give the uh, Sherman Says questions. He's just usually bark orders instead of being on the receiving end, right? (laughs) So, Eric... Get in. Don't, don't yell into the mic. Good afternoon, folks. So we're going to have Sherman, Mayberry, and then Lau. That's going to be our order of operations today. All right. So start us off. Make sure you hover over the mic there. So Mr. Sherman, gold. Buy. Bitcoin. Don't buy if you don't hold any. Hodl. 
hodl. <laughs> what's hodl? Wait, what's that? It's hodl. That's what you do when when it's going down. You hodl. You don't hug it. It's not a. It's it's hold, but it's a typo. And so it means continue to hold it. It's called, you went from a trader to an investor, right? Okay. The trader is the you one who it. gets out. The investor is the one when the price goes down, you hodl. Hodl. All right. Libra. Wait and see. Barbecue. America, man. It's 4th of July. Sorry, I yelled there. America. Fireworks. Now, that's really America. Independence Day. Pew. John Jones versus Thiago Santos. Bones, man. Bones. Even PEDs or not, it's all about bones, man. England versus USA. It's going to be a tough game, but you got to go with the USA. And this has come out after the game, so hopefully I'm right. You're right either way with that, you know, USA, baby. I, I tried to tell someone that, you know, they were talking about be thankful on the 4th of July that we don't have Brexit. And I'm like, well, the U.S. was the original Brexit. And to which they pointed out to me, no, it was a Merexit because we actually left Britain, not Britain leaving us. So that's a good point. Of course, that was a lawyer. So take it, take it with uh, for what it's worth. Women's World Cup champion. USA. Can you name another team left? USA. Okay, good. You could have said England. England. I was thinking he would be his list name. USA. <laughs> Ten-year boond. Short. Sell, run. Do not call Pasco. Do not collect the negative 36 basis points. Do not invest in the negative yielding trap. Was, Inter- I, was I dramatic point. enough there? International sovereign debt, year to date, 9% positive. 9%. 10-year JGB. <laughs> so, can, I, can I repeat the same answer? Uh, buy gold instead? Yeah. It's got the same yield, zero. 10-year <laughs> treasury. Two-year treasury preferred. Big Kahuna. Dupe. Big Mac. I was looking at our, uh, I'm going to go long on this one. I was looking at our previous podcast in the Mr. Dollhead Big Mac Index as one of our uh, Sherman Says questions. And, uh, no, he's just got the grub side. Now he just it. got the food side. His, his uh, words are definitely highly correlated. <laughs> there, there's a <laughs> at least between you two. <laughs> Wait, did you did you, did answer? you answer it? What was I don't your? Think you did. Yeah. No, I was just that was Big my Mac. story. Big Mac index. index. Oh, so that index. was that was the longest. Well, it actually wasn't the longest answer you ever. I yet. think I've done that. Yeah. Before. Big gulp. Oh, Slurpees. You can't get a Slurpee in a Big Gulp cup unless oh. you're stealing from them. You got to get a, you got to do the Slurpee thing. There's no. They Big deliver gulp. now. Slurpees deliver now too, and I'm going to request in the Big Gulp, and we'll see. All right, take pictures, or it didn't happen. U.S. high yield bonds. Dance by the door. You know, nothing wrong with owning some, but make sure you have something to offset a little bit of the risk. Maybe some of that two-year, maybe a five-year treasury, something in there. But, um, you know, uh, be careful dancing with the devil. Triple B credit. I think, you know, that's the riskiest of the, of the investment grade stuff. Long duration, I would, I would just get out of it probably. I would argue that the triple B is riskier than, you know, the single B in high yield today, just given the fact that it's priced to perfection, has so much duration in there. There are different risks, but... At least with the high yield, you know what you own. You know you own high yield. Right. Whereas triple Bs could be high yield when you wake up tomorrow. Right. You, you know that you can be down 5 or 10%. You know, I don't think a lot of people think in those terms. You could reverse all the gains you've seen this year with a little bit of spread widening too, so... Don't forget, if, one of them, if both of them get downgraded, one of them is subject to a lot of exits as well. So, IG corporate bonds. <laughs> the catalyst. 
Washington, D.C. Swamp. Especially this time of year. Division. Uh, I, I, I automatically Pew. went multiplication. <laughs> K Street. Safety. All right, that was Eric Dahl. Eric, thanks for swinging by. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And um, as always, uh, very uh, correlated, uh, Sherman says, we appreciate the help there. So everyone, that's the end of the mid-year recap today. Uh, Tune in for the next guest coming soon. We're out there on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, Double Line Site, now Spotify. So we're stepping up uh, our podcast game a little bit. Uh, If there's anyone else we need to be on, let us know. Thanks for the feedback. Sherman Show Pod at DoubleLine.com. Again, feedback is Sherman Show Pod, all one word, at DoubleLine.com. Tune in soon for our next guest. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.